So this is the third Sunday in a row that basically at the end of the week I get a phone call. This week it was on Friday. Last week, a week ago, it was on Saturday afternoon. And the Sunday before that, it was like three days uh, prior to that. Uh, But I've been asked last minute, could you come and preach? You bet I would. And then Mitch calls on Friday and says, or, or emails and says, hey, I need someone to fill in for me. And I said, you bet. Be glad to. You need to know this sermon today is not a repeat of any of those other last-minute sermons that I preached. As a matter of fact, you get a fairly fresh sermon. <clears throat> I have to admit, I've preached this sermon one time before. But it was a few years ago. It was November 16th. 2008, November 16th, 2008, and I thought what needed to be said that day in a message relates to what you need to hear this morning in a message. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask that your blessing be upon us and be upon the word that is about to be opened in front of us. Thank you, O Lord, for being here in our midst. Thank you for opening our ears. Thank you for using this mouth as your instrument. Bless us in these moments ahead through the power of your Holy Spirit, through the work of Jesus Christ, and to the glory of the Father, we pray. Amen. Everyone is filled with something. If we had a glass in front of us here, the glass would either be filled with liquid or it might be filled with air. But it's totally full with something. Some people are full of themselves. We are like that glass. Some people are full of themselves. They're so impressed with themselves that they're almost unbearable. You know, the numero uno people. You also know that there are some people who are full of problems and full of self-pity. And it's woe is me, and they fill their cup with that. You know people who are full of ambition, and that's what their cup is full of, and you know of people who are full of plans and full of ideas that will make them money and a name for themselves. There are people who are full of, hey, look at me. Everybody look at me. I could go on, but the point is clear. All of us are like those containers, and we have to be filled with something. Whatever drives a person fills that person. And the thing that drives the person determines what that person does and what that person says. And so this morning, on the second Sunday of a new year, I want to ask this question of you. What fills your life? What drives you? 
What drives you? I pray that your response is Christ. I pray that you have taken to heart Paul's words, It is not I who live, but Christ who lives within me. And if that truly is the case, and if Christ is totally filling you and you're filled to overflowing, then you will have a passion for Him. To live for Him in all of your life and in all of your service. One of the basic tenets at Manhattan Christian College, where I work and where I've served for the last 15 years, is that we want to send our graduates out into the church, whether that be into the church as a preaching leader or into the church as a lay leader, if we can use that term. Regardless of chosen profession, we want to be able to send our graduates into service into the church and for their service to be conducted with what we would call a fire in the belly. Have you ever heard that term, having a fire in the belly? Love the term. Fire is nothing new to, the, to us Christians, or shouldn't be. It was the fire came down upon the disciples on the day of Pentecost, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled to overflowing. It was Jesus who said that you will be baptized with the Spirit and with fire. There is that idea of fire. And I love what Jeremiah writes in Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9. He says, His word, speaking of God's word in my heart, is like a fire. A fire that is shut up in my bones. And then listen to what he writes to close that verse. I am weary of holding it in. I cannot keep it in. It's being filled to overflowing. It's that fire in the belly. If a person has the fire in the belly for Christ in his life and in his service, then that person will be ready to fight with energy and determination for what he believes or she believes is right. I like the quote by a person named Marshall Fook who wrote, The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. So I ask you again, are you filled with Christ to overflowing that you have a fire in in the belly, a passion to live for Him in life and in ministry? The passion of ministry is woven through all of Paul's letters. The introduction to his letters often contain an overflow of profound joy that God has used him and that he sees God at work among the people. This morning what I want us to look at is Paul's letter to the church at Thessalonica If you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. It is here that we see the Apostle Paul 
I believe, describe that fire in the belly and what that fire in the belly really produces in the lives of those who follow Jesus. Read along with me, whether you have your Bibles open or whether you want to follow on the screen. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, beginning with verse 2. We always thank God for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labor prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. What a beautiful statement to begin a writing to a church. To a church. What is interesting here to note is that Paul established the church in Thessalonica. He did it in two weeks. He was only there for two weeks before the Jewish leaders and those who didn't like his message drove him out of town. But in those two weeks, there was a church established. And now Paul writes back and he says, How I thank God that your work about your work which is produced by faith and about the labor that you're involved with produced by, prompted by love and your endurance. Because you see, Paul left because of persecution, but the people of Thessalonica did not. They stayed. And because they believed in Jesus Christ, they suffered through persecution. And so, what a great statement. Wouldn't it be neat if Paul wrote a letter to the church at Troy, Kansas, and wrote those words? For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that He has chosen you that He has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit, and with deep conviction. Before we go on, I want just to point out, note those words, He has chosen you. He has chosen you. He wants you. Have, do you remember growing up? Do you remember growing up and being on the playground and it was all your classmates? And do you remember when the teacher said, so-and-so and so-and-so will be the captains. You will choose your teams. Vivid memories, isn't it? For those of you who may have been chosen early, Congratulations. But there were many who were chosen late. And that is a hard struggle. 
But you know, the amazing thing is, God chose each of us first. He chose us at the same time. When He established the plan for salvation, that plan included each of us, I believe. Because our God is an all-powerful God. So He chose us first. And when we're chosen first, what do we want to do? To give our very best. We want to show that we deserve that first choice. And so notice how Paul describes it. Because your gospel came to you. Our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction, a fire in the belly. Read on. You know how we lived among you by your, for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord. In spite of severe suffering, you welcomed the message with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Isn't that neat? What a statement. They became imitators of Paul, but in becoming imitators of Paul, they also became imitators of Jesus Christ. And when we imitate Jesus, the world changes. And there are so few who imitate Him that the word of that imitation or that lifestyle spreads not only to the neighboring counties, but to the whole world. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. In finishing our text, therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There are three things in this text Three attributes that I believe we need to hear as we begin this new year. The first attribute that Paul creates an image of is that of passion. That of passion. These people were filled to overflowing with that passion. There is one thing to preach the Word of God. It's a different thing to preach the Word of God with passion. 
It's one thing to live a life that is good. It's another thing to live a life that is passionate about what we believe in. It's one thing to exist. It's a totally different thing to exist for Christ and a cause. And you see, our society today, that culture in that society simply lives, but without the right cause. Our culture is one today, many who preach, but they preach without the passion. And there are many who live and act in a good way. And at their funeral and at their memorial service, people will say, this was a good man, a good woman, a moral person. But they don't say, this person loved me like Christ loved the church. You see, there is a difference in what we see today in our society, and it's because of passion. Notice that fifth verse. We touched on it. Paul says, I didn't come simply with words, but also with power and with the Holy Spirit and with a deep conviction of fire. If the good news becomes merely a matter of words, it degenerates into a sham, into a charade. There is a quote by a gentleman named Steve Pavlina, and he makes this statement, Passion and purpose go hand in hand. When you discover your purpose, you will normally find it's something you're tremendously passionate about. I preached a sermon about three months ago at Northland Christian Church in Topeka. Talked about the fact that we are called by God. We are chosen by God, but we're called to serve Him. And a lady came up to me after the service and she said, when we give our lives to Christ, we don't simply become a Christian. When you give your life to Christ, you become a minister. We are not called simply to follow Him. We are called to mission. We are called to serve. She's right. It's that calling, it's that being chosen that causes the passion, that fire in the belly to well up. Our purpose as servants of the gospel is to proclaim the good news and not just with words, but with what Paul says about himself, but with power and the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. But let me move on. We need passion, but we also need compassion. We also need compassion. Did you see as this text goes on with what the Apostle writes, 
he makes the statement that their works, that their labor, all prompted by love, was known throughout the whole world, not just in the neighboring counties or regions, but throughout the whole world. It's really about compassion. The impact on the community of Thessalonica was so great, what had happened in establishing the church there, that the religious leaders drove Paul out and then began persecuting these new Christians. Paul had compassion on these people early on because they were not saved, they were lost. That same compassion they showed. The compassion that Paul showed was like the compassion of Jesus. One of the most famous sayings about the Lord Jesus was, He looked over Jerusalem and He wept. Why? He had compassion for them. Why? Because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. Paul wrote two letters to this church. Two letters to these Christians. Both letters are letters of encouragement. Both letters deal with the fact that the church is being persecuted. Paul had compassion for them. He cared for them. Finally, I think one thing that we see in this text is the development of his passion or Christ's passion. Did you see the last verse? It was about the fact that the Thessalonians were waiting for Christ to return so that he could what? Rescue them from the coming wrath. We talk about Jesus Christ and the fact that He died upon the cross. That was His passion. Was that the world might be saved. What Paul wrote to the church at Rome, these familiar words in chapter 5, verses 5 through 8, you see just at the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners... Christ died for us. Do we have that kind of passion for the loss? Do we weep over the lost? Do we proclaim the message to the lost? Do we have His passion that serves others?
in ways that we would never imagine. It was back in the 1990s, 1996 to be exact, so a few years ago. My wife and I have four children. They are all grown now, uh, and it's wonderful being empty nest and to see children that are grown and happy and doing well. But in 1996, our four children, we had a daughter who was at the age of 13, a son who was at the age of 9, and twin sons who were 6 years old. My wife made a decision to go to Colorado and work in a church camp all summer. So she left our home in Illinois and went to Colorado, and she was a cook in a church camp all summer from May 15th until August 15th, and school wasn't over yet. She left me with the children. We survived. We didn't thrive, but we survived and developed a lot of bad habits. But mid-June, our daughter uh, was going to go out to Colorado early, and then the sons and I would follow about a week, week and a half later, and we were spending a month at this camp together up in the mountains of Colorado. We went to the airport in Kansas City, and I had the four children. And, of course, the plane was right on time. The plane was on time. It's 45 minutes late. For planes. At that time, that was right on time. Before the plane even landed, one of my twin sons said to me, Dad, I have to go use the bathroom. Being the smart parent that I had become over those few weeks, I thought, I'm not taking one boy by myself to the bathroom. All of you boys are coming with me. We're, because you know how that happens. When one has to go to the bathroom, ten minutes later the other one has to go. And then ten minutes later the next one has to go. So we all go to the restroom uh, together, all the boys. And right outside the restroom, in, in a short hallway, kind of like this aisle, there's an older lady who's standing along the side. And my boys walk past, and when I get to her, she looks at me and says, Sir, my husband is in there, and he could use some help. And I said, Sure. She said, He's had a stroke, and one side is totally paralyzed. No strength at all. Can't use it. And I said, Sure. I walked in, and here was a man I saw immediately. He was sitting in a wheelchair, middle of the restroom. And, and, I, and I walked in, and you know, I'm called to be a Christian. God called me. And part of that is serving others. And so out of that calling, there was a passion, and I knew what was right. And so I said to that man, how can I help you? And he said, I need, I, I need help to get into the stall. And he said, this one looks to be the largest one, so if you could wheel me over, help lift me up. And so through a kind of a broken, because his lips didn't work on one side, but he explained to me. And so I lifted him out of the wheelchair, got him turned around. He said, you'll need to help me unbuckle my pants and pull my pants down and then lower him on the toilet. And I did all of that and got him seated and, and I closed the door and I said, whenever you're done, let me know. And so uh, it was a couple of minutes later and he said, I'm done. And so I went and opened the door 
And I said, what do I need to do? He said, if you could lift me up. And so I lifted him off the toilet, and then he looked at me and he said, I'm going to ask you to do something that I bet you've never been asked before. Could you wipe me? And I said, you know, I've never been asked by anyone your age, but I have four children and I've wiped a lot of bottoms so I can wipe yours, and so I did. And got him cleaned and and uh, pants up and back in the wheelchair and out, and I told my sons, take him out. You know, I went through those steps. I thought, you know, God has called me to serve. He's called all of us to serve. I could help him in the restroom. And there was compassion because he was helpless. He was helpless. He couldn't do it by himself. But what I discovered, because I told my boys, take him on out, his wife's out in the hallway. I went and washed my hands really, really good. And by the time I got out, they were already down the terminal. I can't remember whether the gentleman said thank you or not. I know his wife didn't, who had originally talked to me. But I have to admit, that was one of the few times that I truly felt like I was serving as Christ served. And that was his passion. We as followers of Jesus, if you need a New Year's resolution, because you were chosen, because you were called, let that passion come out of your life. And as you serve, may you serve with compassion. But may all of this be about imitating Christ and serving with His passion. The question is, do you have the fire in the belly? Remember that quote by Fuke. The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. I said I'd only preach this sermon one other time. November 16, 2008. It was on a Sunday night at Valley Center, Kansas. It was an ordination sermon. It was the ordination sermon that I preached for a young man named Mitch Morrill. And I said, Mitch, have passion. Have compassion. And have his passion. I think he does. I pray you have that likewise. Heavenly Father, You have chosen us 
and we rejoice. We are most blessed because we are yours. For anyone who isn't here today, O Lord, who has never recognized the fact that they have been called and chosen by you, may they hear that call this morning and may they follow you. May they come just now as we sing. But Lord, I pray for the many here who have already been called, who already believe. And I ask, O Lord, that you challenge each of us to give our lives in such a way that our lives are yours and bring you glory and honor. To you be the glory, O Lord, in Jesus' name.